Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, the training set for every skeptical large language model with the caustic critic, co-host, independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and economist, author, music geek, and unrelenting statistics nerd, the Scottish wizard, Will Page. If there's a bubble that burst, <laughs> we try to think we'd pricked it first, and we're going to have a hard time keeping up with our guests today, and we have a lot of pricking to do with the markets at all-time highs. So... We want to bring on a fellow critic of sycophants and stenographers, someone whose company makes robo-adjustments to the reported accounts of thousands of listed companies and tries to unearth the real financials behind the content marketing from company investor relations teams. We'll be back in a moment with David Trainer from New Constructs to give us a sense of what he does and how he tries to unpack the bubbles constantly bubbling up that we know spell trouble. Back in a moment. at New Constructs on Twitter. I am at the Real D Train 37 on Twitter as well. But mostly the website, we've got products that are as low as $9.99 up to $4,000 a month. We have really made it our goal in life to, to take what we believe to be superior fundamental analysis and make it as broadly available to as many folks as possible in as many forms as possible. That being the sort of most sophisticated data-oriented institutional investor down to your amateur, new-to-the-market kind of investor who just wants to know green is good and red is bad. Nice introduction. And I really applaud the fact that you're trying to get outreach. It's not a closed-door shop. You're trying to get your message out there. Now, I would say one thing that unites us all is an element of cynicism. I'm very cynical about central banks and government stats. Richard Kramer is very cynical about sycophants and stenographers who ask CEOs how to think about a business in their quarterly earnings calls. And I browse through some of your fantastic work, which I have to say for our audience is very clear, very concise, lots of white space. It's easy to read. And that's really important. Most analyst research doesn't get read. Your material is easy to read. But you display a fair amount of cynicism about Wall Street as well. I would like to hear 
a little bit about your backstory, but also sounds like the title of the book, this, The Origins of Cynicism. Where does the cynicism come from? Well, it's from having a front row seat to the tech bubble while at Credit Suisse. Oh, wow. You worked for those wow. guys. I was with there. I was there during the tech bubble. I got my start on Wall Street at Credit Suisse where they hired me in, in 96 to build out a, what was called a global platform for understanding the economics of businesses. So at the time, the term was popularized as EVA, economic value added. You guys have probably heard mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. We didn't do EVA. We did a more generic version because it's all the same thing. Some people have names, funny names for it. Some people have, don't. CFRI, EVA, Crokey, whatever. They're all the same thing. But Credit Suisse hired me to build that out for them in 96. And we were really super successful with that. I did that for a couple of years. Had some of the biggest clients in the world say they wanted to pay us big money, hard dollars for access. I probably had 80% of the analysts around the world using my model. And my model was just a, a kind of a more sophisticated Excel model that took into account a lot more data than you normally would in an earnings model. And the whole idea was to get to the true underlying economics of a business. Before I was at Credit Suisse, I was at an executive compensation consulting firm where most of what we did was go to boards of directors and say, look, whatever you don't pay executives based on accounting earnings because you can grow accounting earnings while running the business into the ground. <laughs> and that to me was like, that was, a, that was an epiphany. I remember being, oh my God. So I, I was right to be frustrated all that time in college because we never learned anything uh, about really understanding. I know we had to fame. as the guest in our hundredth episode. And he was, his opening line was, look, what we did was not illegal. It followed the accounting rules at the time, but that was a classic case of a business that got paid on accounting earnings, not on real profits or cash. 1000%. A lot of this stuff is perfectly legal. I actually spent, we could tell another story about this, but I worked for FASB for five years on their investor advisory committee. And I could tell you about that. There's not the congruency you would expect to see between the people making the rules on how companies should disclose their financial information and what investors care about. I mean, you'd be blown away by FASB's kind of sometimes inability to grasp what their job really is. There's just conflict. Just for general listeners, FASB is the accounting standards board that determines the ways in which companies should report in hopefully a clear, concise, and even-handed manner. That's right. So, so back to your original question, Will, I, I was at Credit Suisse and we were doing this great work. I mean, we had Fidelity and Janus and Kreff and some of the biggest clients in the world really excited about these models we built for you know, a couple thousand companies around the world. And I would travel to our our European and Asian offices and train analysts and clients up on what it is we were doing. And it was a pretty strong movement toward really having a better model for understanding the fundamentals of the business. And look, a lot of the buy side guys, even back then, they didn't have time to read through 200 page filings every quarter for every single company they wanted to track. Mm -hmm. So there's a real service here. But we saw the conversation around how to analyze businesses take a real turn to the negative or to the superficial. We went from the morning call focusing on economic earnings, return on invested capital, reverse DCF, to back to price to earnings, price to sales. <laughs> then it went to price to clicks, and then it went to price to eyeballs. And I'll never forget the global head of research who wasn't really in, in on the deal. When that analyst said price to eyeballs, he, I'll never forget, he stood up in the meeting with everyone and everybody's piped in from around the world. 
and throws all his papers on the desk and says, I can't believe this blankety blank and stormed out. And I'll never forget that. Yep. And I was kind of a little too young and naive to realize just how honestly sinister what was going on. Because it only came out later and I didn't really even realize that when Elliot Spitzer got his big $1.2 billion settlement, they busted the Credit Suisse analyst writing these glowing research reports on the IPOs, the greatest company of all time, blah, blah, blah. And then in the same breath, sending an email to one of their friends saying, I can't believe anyone's stupid enough to invest in this piece of blank. <laughs> Now, I love this. And Credit Suisse is a perfect segue to the second icebreaker before I hand you over to Richard, which is, I want to go back to a children's story of mine, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Mom, Dad, there's a wolf at the door. Mom, Dad, rush the door. There's no wolf at the door. Mom, Dad. This whole betrayal of trust over time, that story captures. We had the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. All the brightest minds in the room say, it will never happen again. We have rules in place. That's the last time we'll ever do it. The wolf won't come. And then you're at Credit Suisse. Look at what happened to them. Richard tried to count with the fingers on his hand how many bubbles have burst in 100 episodes of this show. And he ran out of fingers. Why is it, David? Why is it that the brightest guys in the room continue to make the same frothy, bubble-troublesome mistakes? With every 10, 15 years that pass, I just can't figure it out. It's not a mistake. It's on purpose. No, it can't be. These folks make, they make enormous amounts of money. They create the bubbles on purpose. Wall Street creates the bubbles on purpose. So going back to the Credit Suisse situation, right? Huge IPO bubble, right? Tech, one of the biggest pops of all time. One of the biggest bursts of all time, right? And Credit Suisse gets, or 10 banks get fined 1.2 billion. They made that much in a month. <laughs> It's a cost of doing or business. More. Yeah. It was a small cost of doing business. A rounding error. Right. It's a rounding error. And so whether it's Peloton or Beyond Meat or Oatly or whatever, right? Penny stocks now, or WeWork, right? All these bubbles, I guarantee you there are a lot of people behind those bubbles minting millions and millions, if not billions. And the bubble, the bursting, that's water on somebody else's deck. <laughs> doesn't bother. They've made their money. They've sailed off into the sunset a while ago. Mm. So that's what I believe we're up against, right? Th these bubbles are intentional because they make people a lot of money. And global financial crisis is a great example. The orchestrators of that bubble, they got off scot-free. They got bailed out. Mm -hmm. They got their freaking compensation packages. That's mm -hmm. incredible. It does remind me of Peter Jenner, one of the original music managers. He took on Pink Floyd on the back of his business card. It had the words, my mission is your commission. And I wonder whether that was the focus of your leader at Credit Suisse and the analysts that followed that path, which is you take your eye off the ball. The business fundamentals are here, but I got commission coming in there. And of course, no, I had meetings with some of Quattrone's analysts specifically to that point about like, hey, using my mop. And I was told some things that were at the time illegal and I didn't even realize it. Like the fact that they had two sets of numbers for the companies they liked. <laughs> They had the low number that they published for earnings, right? Because they said to me, David, in a somewhat patronizing tone, you know how stocks go up when they beat the number, hmm. right? So stocks we like, we have buy rating on, we have low estimates. So it's easier for them to beat. Jeez. Oh, but if we put the low estimate into your cash flow model, well, then it, the stock's going to look expensive because we're not showing the cash flow growth they needed to justify the price. So I can't share my, I can't use your model because it's going to bring transparency to my process that I don't want. Richard, let me pass the baton to you, but can I just say quickly, Quattron does sound like a performance-enhancing drug. Am I missing something? 
<laughs> well, it depends on whose performance. I have my own many run-ins with Frank Quatrone and being on the other side of that since founding Arate in 2000. And most recently, there was a company called Vonage, which was bought by a Swedish company called Ericsson for $6 billion in cash at in the end of 2021. So at the height of the last sort of big tech boom in, in 2021. And all I needed to know that Ericsson had made a dreadful acquisition was that the investment banker advising Vonage selling it to Ericsson was Catalyst Partners, Frank Quatrone. But David, I want to focus on another question. We did a podcast about minding the gap and about how there's gap earnings, lies and damn statistics or some quote like that. But we talked about how companies cherry pick the most favorable metrics, these adjusted earnings. And obviously what you do at New Constructs is to post is to what you do at New Constructs is to deconstruct that fiction of adjusted earnings. Do you think the managements involved, leave aside the bankers and their conflicts of interest or their gains, do you think the managements are in some ways required to mislead their investors in those ways? Or do you think they're complicit in it and they're actively adjusting the earnings for their own gain, knowing that the house of cards will fall, but they'll have sold their stock long ago? It's hard for me to get inside the minds of all these folks, Richard, but I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I do believe that once one of their peers is it able to take advantage of an accounting innovation, we'll call it, then they're in some ways required to do the same. Otherwise, they will fall behind on a relative term in terms of, on a relative basis in terms of rel earnings growth. And so the board would say, hey, look, you're not showing the same numbers as these guys. You need to, you got to find a way to do that too. Right. And so I think that's part of what happens. And I think that's a lot of what happens on Wall Street. There's a lot of copycatting. Right. Right. I mean, it, people find ways to make money and then people copycat that. And if I can boost my earnings through a new accounting innovation that my peers are using, then I mean, in may, many ways, maybe doing my investors a disservice by not taking advantage of the same trick. And if you're exposing the truth behind the adjustments in new constructs and you have your regulators, you have your investors, you have your companies themselves and the analysts that promote them, I mean, who's really doing the biggest disservice to their own interests? Is it the regulators who fail to simply come out and say, well, hang on a second, we need to have the real numbers and not these, this fake set? Is it the investors who turn a blind eye to that because the stocks are going up because they beat adjusted estimates because of stock comp or some other write-off? Is it the the banks and analysts, which we can put them to one side and we assume that, or is it the managements who know you can't perpetually adjust your way out of a situation where you don't generate cash. But who do you feel is really ultimately responsible for this plague of adjustments that we've got to numbers that you're churning out constant robo rectifications of for your business model? Robo rectifications, that's a good one. I, that's a tough question too. I, for me, at the end of the day, I feel like it, the responsibility lies with the individual. And look, Wall Street from the beginning has been a buyer beware market situation. I mean, there's always been people trying to hustle you. And at the end of the day, they're all guilty of it. They're all making tons of money on it. But at the end of the day, they're preying on the laziness and lack of effort and analytical rigor of individual investors mm -hmm. and institutional investors. They're jumping in as well. And so Look, the only solution for this is for people to begin to care and want to understand the fundamentals, to have some sense of risk, which I believe has been severely blunted 
with 10 plus years of zero interest rate policy. Hmm. It's just been fueling the flames of speculation for so long that I feel like, I don't know if there are many folks that even remember what it means to be analytically rigorous. And, and hardly, besides us in this room here, right? It's a few of us, but for the most part, yeah, it's just people need to start to take responsibility for themselves for as, because as long as they don't do that, there will be always be someone, hmm. whether it's the management team, the bankers, whoever, always be someone there to take advantage of them. And before wow. I'm going to toss it back to Will, because he has a great line about economic students graduating today who've never understood what an interest rate that reflects a normality would be. We've never seen that, or maybe we've just seen it in the past year. But how much of an impact do you find that perhaps 80% of the market now is robots trading with robots, computer programs that are unmoored from concerns about being paid back and justifying fundamental valuations, but are just trading minute differences between stocks, trading beats misses versus consensus expectations or smart consensus or what have you. How much of that is contributing to this bubble in valuations that we keep see keep see seeing pop up again and again? It's an enormous amount. And I think so much of it has to do with the order flow. I think access to order flow or effectively the ability to see the future for the stock market because you get to see the trades before they hit the market, right? If you got that, who cares about fundamentals? Right. And what that's also given folks is a cushion, a layer, a margin of safety, right? In the most perverted sense of the term for institutional investors to trade these overly expensive meme stocks, whatever, institutions can go in and take that risk because they're going to be able to get out before it crashes. Yeah. Because they see the order flow. This is Robin Hood so, GameStop story right there, isn't it? That's right. That's right. And so one of the things I think that's different now than there was when I was on Wall Street and saw the tech bubble and saw everything trying to finally sell off is that once investors got spooked enough to realize, oh, people have figured out that some of these companies are not worth what we've been saying, the institutions, I mean, they had to get out, just get out, right? They couldn't take any risks. Like, oh my God, this, the joke is out there. With meme stocks, the joke is in our face. <laughs> We've got bored apes and NFTs and things that are just absurd. Mm. It's in everyone's face. They know it's a joke. The meme stock investors call themselves bored apes. They just don't even care about fundamentals. They don't even think it matters. And that's because the institutions are helping prop these things up because they can do so effectively without risk because if and when sentiment turns, they see it coming a mile away and then get out. Mm. So they can own Tesla, they can own Beyond Me, they can own GameStop and really enable these stocks to stay disconnected from underlying fundamentals for unprecedented amounts of time. But they're just owning, they're just owning a speculative trading vehicle. They're not investing. They have no, in the sense of, as I explained to Will on one of our first runs all those years back, the idea that you put money into something and you hope over time, the business will generate enough excess profits to pay you back some portion of the money in a dividend and your money will stay there as some sort of equity in the business. This is nothing to do with that. It's just a speculative investment vehicle that, that might be owned for as short as a few minutes. 1000%. And that's one of the first things I train everyone that comes to new constructs to understand the difference between speculating and investing, right? Speculating is forecasting the day-to-day -day psychology of the market. Investing is doing what you said, Richard, which is investing in, in, in an asset based on its cash yield over its life. Right. Two incredibly different activities. 
And Ben Graham did write in one of his books that Wall Street would be well served to occasionally remind the investing public of this distinction so as not to be blamed when it all goes to hell. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing it, yeah. right? But yeah, that's the problem. That's kind of goes back to your original, your prior question, Will. You know, who's to blame here? At the end of the day, the individual investors need to kind of wake up and understand the difference between investing and speculating and recognize that as long as they don't, they are risking losing everything to people who have a major information advantage over them. Hmm. I can pick up on the algorithmic trading question there. I'm often fascinated by herd-like behavior in markets. And with the scale of speculative trading, the scale of algorithmic trading, you have to step back and wonder, is the next bubble that's going to hit us a function of the herd-like behavior? And I always think, often think about John Maynard Keynes' beauty contest example, where there's like, I don't know, let's say seven beauty pageants on display. And we're going to ask David Trainer, who do you think is the most beautiful beauty pageant up there? You say number three. How does your answer to the question change when I say, who do you think is going to win the competition? You start to think like the judges. I think the judges will go for number six. Oh, we just switched. And it's how we don't think like ourselves, but we think like our neighbors, which creates the herd-like behavior. Is there something to be said for that, that anomaly, that beauty pageant dilemma, when we look at the scale of algorithmic trading and speculative trading in markets? We're all looking at our neighbors and not looking at the fundamentals. 1,000%. I'd throw greater fool theory in there as, as well. Part of, part of one of the interesting experiences at Credit Suisse was some of my colleagues, I remember on the sales desk that were with me and enjoying great success selling this access to this fundamental analysis tool that we built there. And then Quattro came and things started to change and sort of one by one, they would almost come to me almost like confession and say, I gave in and I bought some of these tech stops. <laughs> and I remember one guy that had the best explanation was a guy who says, David, it does the fundamental he goes, I don't think the fundamentals matter anymore. It's the greater fool theory. Mm. All that matters is that I can sell this to someone who's willing to pay more. And for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. It's just gonna go up. And that's the way people think. And I think will absolutely. I think that's so much of what drives the markets these days. Mm. And it's very much a herd mentality because that's a sentiment thing. Absolutely. I can remember on the run up to Spotify's IPO, this analyst came up to me and said, Will, the work you're doing with data science and economics is fantastic. It's clear, it's digestible, you're making it clear what the business is doing. But let me tell you how it works in my world. You give me one bar that's bigger than another bar, and I can sell the shit out of it. I was like, okay, that's what you got for your PhD or your MBA. That's great to know. And let, wrapping up part one, this has been great. I can't I genuinely say I can't wait for part two to unpack this conversation further, but you did mention NFTs in one of your earlier rants. One of the most successful podcasts we ever had was completely unscripted, unprompted, two years ago to the day, pretty much. I come back from South by Southwest and Richard Kramer said, let's just talk about what you learned out there. And I said there was bigger cues for headsets and NFTs than there were for live bands playing in the flesh. And I found that interesting. In part two, Richard Kramer explained to our audience what a wash trade was. We never knew that term before. And literally every man, woman, cat and dog was coming up to us saying, that podcast, we didn't know what wash trades were. Now we're getting out of NFTs. He was the first person to call its bluff. Now, I'm assuming you probably have written a book about wash trades, but that concept of laddering up the price between buyer and seller and waiting for a sucker to come along and buy into it, does it kind of give you nightmares? Does it keep you up at night when you see wash trades at play in the market? Yeah, it's a game I feel like that's been going on for a long time because 
there are certain people that have access to information around the direction, the near-term direction of price that can give them, insulate them from a sudden drop. Mm. And so they can play it and sell it off to unsuspecting retail investors all day long. Those NFTs sold for millions are now worth less than a thousand dollars. I mean, that's what you get for trying to speculate in some ways, right? I mean, listen, it's like playing the lottery, but a little bit bigger stakes sometimes, right? And, I mean, Fight you know, for a one dollar ticket. You're gambling. You know, you're gambling. If you're going to gamble, be prepared to get burned. But recognize that it is gambling and speculating, not investing. That's what an NFT. That's what it was. I mean, you think about it, right? I mean, you got to do your diligence or get burned, and don't cry to us about it. And one last thing, maybe in this uh, first half, because. One of the big questions around NFTs, you could see there was no there, right? The emperor was always fuck naked. So these digital goods, okay. so there was no cost to, to come up with the design. They were never going to have a, an intrinsic value. But one of the big issues we've got as an firm of analysts is getting access to concrete data about companies because companies disclose so little. The biggest companies disclose the least. So you have reportable segments for some of the largest companies in America, hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue, and they report in two product lines. And they just literally don't tell you anything. How is it that you can get behind the reality of the limited numbers that you're given? What do you, where are the roadblocks you come up against in the work you do when companies just tell you so little about the intrinsic value of their assets that are underneath? Yeah, they don't want to be transparent about those things because the transparency would require more honesty, right? As long as you're spinning a tail, you want to keep it as much in the suspended disbelief area as possible. And so there there are limits to disclosure. And we could talk a little bit about what, how FASB does or does not really address that. Our focus, Richard and Will, is on taking advantage of the data that we can access. Right. We, and that's footnotes. There's a lot of information in footnotes. When it comes to different business segments, divisions, you're right. The disclosure there is really limited and it's inconsistent, which is a real problem because they may do it by geogra geography. They may do it by product line. And every time they switch it, your data set is effectively rendered unused and not useful because you don't have any history or you can't track. So we're focusing on the footnotes and constructing a greater overall measure of profitability. We may not have the details, as much details as we like about divisions. That would be great to have. Companies are resistant to that, but that's what we're doing. We're going through the entire 10K and 10Q and we created technology to do that because there's just not enough humans around these days who want to do that mm. or do it well. I thought this would be a meeting of like minds. I'm bit worried how like our minds are yeah. but in part two we'll go down the rabbit hole and dig into the sick fans and stenographers in a little bit more depth back soon hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble. We're here with David Trainer, the founder of New Constructs, which helps real investors deconstruct and get behind the truth behind the reported numbers that companies give us. David, one question I wanted to get into in the second part where we tend to go down the rabbit hole and get into a bit more detail is when companies have these profit warnings or these jaw-dropping moments where the scales fall off investors' eyes and you realize, oh geez, there's no there. One of the questions we always ask is, do managements know that's going to happen? And they have been misleading investors all along until it's just the, the music stopped and it, it ran out? Or do you think that a lot of the managements are actually inhabiting this rarefied layer at the top of companies where they're not really in touch with what's going on in their business? We always look for that explanation of, is the management malevolent? Have they just lied to you the whole time? Or are they just incompetent? In other words, they're really not in touch with the business. They're out there doing yeah. investor conferences and schmoozing with the analysts and the bankers. And they don't really know when their sales guys are telling them those deals aren't going to close at the end of the quarter. Which do you think it is? And that's, do you think that's a useful dichotomy for thinking about companies when things go wrong? As a co-host, that's a question I want to answer, David. Kick it. I think, the, I think it is a useful dichotomy. I think it's sort of, you got to set the limits there. And I think that there are going to be some people on one end of the spectrum and some people at the other and, mo and a lot in between. So you've certainly, we've seen bad actors, Fastow and Enron, right? I mean, those were people who knew it was going on and they knew that they were fudging the numbers for a reason to make themselves money. And I think that happens. Valiant is another one that just springs to mind. Theranos, right? Wirecard. Um, I think we had Dan McCrum from Wirecard on the show giving his story over two podcasts. Yeah. I mean, incredible. Just cooking the books. Yeah, I'm, and I think that's what I think that's what Musk is doing at Tesla. I think he's smart enough to know that these things he's talking about aren't going to work. The robot, the dancing person, right? I mean, it's just just over promising. He's a king of hype. He's like a modern oil snake snake oil salesman. And I think there are other people who are legitimately asleep at the wheel. I think there's a lot in between where some things you know happen maybe faster than expected. There are rules around disclosure. Remember Regulation FD, Fair Disclosure, which only been around for 20 plus years. It's another funny story we could talk about. Uh, and so they may know, but they can't say until they publicly release to all. And then look, there's plenty of what we call earnings distortion, where companies are burying things in the footnotes in order to overstate or understate their earnings, depending on the season. And we see that happen in a big way. And... There's plenty of studies that show that they do it on purpose. They admit it. There's a great piece that it was published, made the, made the public sites like Market Watch, CFOs who fudge the numbers. If you Google that, you'll find it. And it said something like 20 to 40% of CFOs regularly fudge their numbers. And number two, the Wall Street analysts know about it. And number three, they don't do anything. So um, they're, all I think, I think they're all in cahoots with each other, it seems. 
I mean, there's definitely cooperation. Like, so for example, in working with some investor relations firms over the years, because a lot of people have come to us and said, hey, we think this is really cool. You're providing the truth. This could be really helpful to my clients that have that aren't getting enough credit for their valuation, for their profitability, or their return on invested capital. We, we prepare presentations that show how undervalued some of these stocks are relative to peers based on their return on invested capital or their economic earnings. And we had a couple of reactions. One was, oh, well, if we can't do this for some clients and not others, and if we can't do it for all of them, we can't do it at all because some clients, you're going to look bad in your model, David. I'm like, it's not my model. <laughs> what, the world's not perfect? It's the truth. It's just the <laughs> all truth. All kids don't get an A in the class. It is what it is. You're telling me there's a bad apple in that basket? No, that's not how the world works, David. Yeah. And so they'd say, we don't want to use it for that reason. And the other problem is that like, just a lot of people just didn't even understand that. They didn't understand the idea that they might have their own, these investor relations folks, the idea that they might have their own voice other than what Wall Street tells them what to do. And Wall Street very much kind of beats the drum of what companies do because they say, look, 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 let us take care of what invest, because they're the voice piece yeah. to investors with their reports. And so a lot of companies, they're just kind of trying to make sure their numbers are in line with the way Wall Street looks at them so they can maximize the quality of their relationship with Wall Street. Well, two things on that score. One, I've had the former investor relations head of one of the Magnificent Seven companies tell me some years back, the job of the analyst is to effectively repeat our equity story to a bunch of investors so that we don't have to do it ourselves. And the other thing, there's a brilliant Wall Street Journal piece from some years back about how magically... Wall Street analysts tend to cut their earnings estimates at the very end of the quarter so that it gives the company scope for beating by one cent. And GE was a famous company that did that sort of earnings manipulation. They all give the, despite regulation fair disclosure, they all give the wink, wink, nudge, nudge to a group of analysts sufficiently large that the consensus estimate drops just ahead <laughs> of the quarter. AT&T is another company that was famous for doing that. And below, hey, presto, the company beats estimates. And the narrative is all not about what the company does, whether the earnings were any good, whether their return on invested capital was any good. It's just that they beat, and that's all you need to know. So the, these are, I think, well-worn tropes, but it's just amazing how few investors seem to be willing to keep them in the forefront of their mind all the time. And you think that's just because they're too busy making money what, however the market works these days. I think it's partly that. I also think it's just super short attention spans. Yeah, I think so I too. Mean, just look at what we're, yeah, I mean, and I think that comes down to all kinds of other habits. I mean, it's junk food, it's high fructose syrup drinks, it's, it's availability of recreational drugs. Like people just want to freaking play video games and eat Doritos. Like who wants to do work? Right. And after 10 years of, or several years of all this fiscal stimulus on top of the monetary stimulus. I mean, it's, it's a societal problem, I think, in some ways where it's just like, look, this is the easy way. Let's just, let's go with that. And other people making money doing it. Why don't I do that too? Why work hard for my money? Right. It, on, on that extreme of the pendulum swing there, can I bring it back to another way of looking at the world? And private equity has its critics. Our potential next government has one of those critics, which will be interesting if Labour come into power and they change the rules on debt and interest. But one godfather of private equities, Henry Cravis, KKR, and I have to say one of the best economic lessons you can ever have is to watch the film Barbarians at the Gate, which is 
outright hilarious, but so many lessons there. But I remember watching Henry Cravis on stage once talking about how he values a company where he talked about the importance of walking around the factory floor, observing the body language, seeing how the hierarchy talk to each other. And that, obviously that's not scalable, but it is the other extreme of this sort of skim, glance, knee-jerk reaction culture. Just read a paragraph and you're good to go. Buy the stock, sell the stock based on a tweet-length type statement to actually getting a touchy-feely approach to why is everyone looking so enthused here because they know they're onto a good thing? Why is everyone looking baffled here because they know they're not onto a good thing? Any thoughts you could share on that other extreme of actually getting your hands dirty and visiting the company and walking around? That's the art of investing. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we, if we all had an infinite amount of time, it's what we would do. It's a beautiful thing to be able to have that time to do that kind of diligence and build an investment case that can only have that kind of confidence based on that kind of insight, right? And I think that's a, it's a beautiful thing. And it's the opposite of what really I feel like the message is to investors these days. I mean, just CNBC is a great example, right? I mean, every now and then I go on CNBC and people are like, oh, hey, you're on CNBC. I'm like, yeah, do you know how many dipsticks they have on there a day? <laughs> like 200 a minute, right? It's just through. And yet they're doing real analysis, right? But it's so superficial. 10 second clips, 20 second clips, new guests. 20 guests an hour. Yeah. Right? Nobody's doing anything in depth. And so everything is superficial. Uh, and nobody even thinks that there should be something beyond that superficiality. I just have to quickly ask you, given I was watching American football into the wee hours this morning, 20 guests an hour, is that the same amount as commercial breaks or is there more commercials than there are guests? That'd be an interesting ratio. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's the same thing you see people who were, were journalists over the last 10 years really complain about how they were replaced by people who were just better at getting clicks. Yeah. yeah. Right. And we see all this, it's a problem in the news. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads, right? We're just there to shock and awe people and not necessarily help them understand stuff. Mm. And that's what leads, people make up stories just to get attention. Yeah. If I can jump in with another sort of burning question I have for you, David, it takes us into a bit of a deeper water, but I have to ask the AI question. We know the purpose of this podcast is people like to impress each other at dinner tables come the weekend. And talking about AI is how you impress people. It's a phrase de jour, as Richard likes to call it. Do you think there's going to be a role for large language models to get rid of a lot of these bread and butter analysts? I mean, it does feel like a large echo chamber. There is only one set of quarterly results that Apple has to produce. Do we need thousands and thousands of overpaid analysts to digest those same results? There can only be one God, right? Agreed. The term we use, Will, is one version of the truth. And especially when it comes to things based on numbers, it's very easy to have. There is only one version of the truth. And that's why I built technology to, to do what we do is because it's impossible to do manually. And if it works, then we will have the one version of the truth for the profitability and valuation of companies. And we built that. We have proof that it works. And that's why we did it. And that's what we do need. Question is adoption. That's been the question that my investors and I have been asking the world for 20 years. I've been doing this for a long time. And what I've come to understand is that, look, the powers that be are very happy with the status quo. Last I checked, Goldman made what, like three or four billion last quarter? Mm -hmm. Morgan Stanley, around that much, right? Turkeys don't, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. And, and so... The, the bottom line is that they're doing extremely well with this current in this current regime. The status quo is very enriching to them, and they look at disruptive technology like ours as a potentially a major threat. And we've I've talked to a lot of different firms, and people ask me, "Oh, what about the sell side?" And I said, 
don't think the sell side is really in the market for what New Constructs provides. Well, what do you mean? It's great analysis. It could really grow market share. So you have to realize you can't put the cat back in the bag. You do New Constructs kind of analysis on one company and not another because it's a hot IPO. People are going to ask you, well, why don't you do that good analysis you were bragging about doing for this one company on all the companies? Well, the answer is because the bankers don't want good analysis on bad companies. It makes them harder to sell. I can't afford a bad apple. And indeed, well, look, the market is looking for the, two things. One is they're looking for cheerleading. So they want the raw and people to do the cheerleading for, for companies. And the analyst community, outside of a few grizzled veterans like myself and, and work on my firm and a few other places, generally sucks in this constant stream of young, naive people who believe that some new app is going to revolutionize the world and be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And for most of the time, that is just incorrect. Yeah, that's true. They, they also spend a lot of money. Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to know that the money that, that these research analysts gets paid, get paid, where does that come from? Does it come from the research they're selling? No, they don't sell research. No. Research departments, yeah, they don't make any money. I, I call mean, it the tapas. It's a tapas dilemma. Tapas in Spain was given to you for free to complement your wine. In Britain, they start selling it and it costs even more than the wine. But if tapas is like analyst research. They give it away for free so you consume more IPO fees. But there's a market failure issue there. If everyone is giving tapas away for free, A, it's going to degrade the quality of the tapas, and B, there's not enough wine to upsell to offset your costs. Mm -hmm. So I think there is, a, there is a turkey which has to vote for Christmas over the next three to four years. Mm -hmm. You can't ignore it. And can I just stress, after being inside Google's building last week, they're all saying the same thing there. Pretty soon these large language models are going to work out how to sell adverts too. Yes. And, and so, that's so right. David, that's I have a question following on from that. And that's really, what are the marketing challenges you face in new constructs in getting investors to pay attention, to slow down, to dig into the accounting and the fundamentals and the details? And you and I both in our business, we're fighting this seductive narrative that constantly misdirects investor attention. And one great example of that, I think just the, back from the Henry Kravis example, when you see a company announce we're going to fire 12 or 17% of our staff. The analysts immediately bake in the cost savings from that as if it's magical profits that they'll just get. But they never seem to subtract the revenue that those people were supposed to be generating from the projects they were working on or the disruption of the business when one in 10 people have to walk out the door. So what are the challenges that you have in marketing your work to get people to slow down and pay attention? And what are the apocryphal case studies you have to say, well, if you'd just actually taken a look at the accounting here, you wouldn't have walked off a cliff and lost 90% of the value of a stock. In terms of case studies, we have a litany of them. In terms <laughs> of influence, it's difficult. I've gotten to the point where I'm not trying to change people that much. Richard, I mean, listen, I say, look, people ask, well, who's your target customer? People that care about risk, People that care about fundamentals, people that care about protecting their family, people that care about doing things the right way, people that care about intelligent capital allocation. Because to the extent we keep throwing billions of dollars at junk companies like a WeWork, which found a way to go public even though no one really wanted it, or a Beyond Meat or a list of 100 other stocks that we've said should go to zero and is down, are down 90%. As long as we keep throwing bad capital after bad companies or good capital after bad companies, 
we're hurting our own standards of living. Mm. This is capital and wealth that could be used to grow prosperity mm. as opposed to just be siphoned Murdered, off yeah. to a few executives and bankers. This is where I get more excited about what's going on here because in some ways the health of our society is at risk because we keep enriching the people who are stealing from us. There's not going to be left anything left over for the people who want to do it the right way. Yeah, and equally but an individual and equally about income inequality. Privileging the, Sorry, the this earnings beat culture, which encourages executives to starve the long-term futures of businesses or misdirect investor attention from what the company should be doing long-term to, to make the earnings in the short-term. And it, as you worked in past life, linked to executive compensation is just get to be a bit outrageous. And why in uniquely in America, do you have these executives which are paid tens or hundreds of millions of dollars? It just doesn't happen in any other society. It wouldn't generally happen in Europe or for most parts of Asia? Yeah, I, that's a good question. It's a good question. Why are we so much worse about it here? I don't know. We definitely have, it feels like oftentimes a greater kind of consumer-oriented nature, more materialism. There's more the social media craze and who's better and who's that. I mean, all these kind of reality TV shows, it feels like our culture is sort of rotting from the inside out in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And everyone's looking to get rich quick and not work when so much of what America was founded on was willing to take some risk, work extra hard, and make a life for yourself based on how hard you work and the merit of what it is you do, not on your luck or your ability to kind of scam somebody. And I feel like so much of that is, is what's lost. That's part of what motivates me, what motivates me to start new constructs is that I want to I want to protect the integrity of the capital markets. Yeah, absolutely. Because the capital markets are part of what made America great. Admiral Wars. David, to wrap up the show, uh, you've done a fantastic job telling us how we got to where we are. And <laughs> ironic that you started off with Credit Suisse and we look at what happened to them last year. We usually finish by trying to look forward a little bit, help the audience who are getting a great introduction to you and your company here, spot the smoke signals ahead, be able to read beneath those knee-jerk headlines and see a little truth out there. Those snazzy PowerPoint presentations that just need, you require rubber desks because you're banging your head against it. What one or two smoke signals could you give our audience as we sort of kick off 2024 in terms of just things to look out for, things to be a little bit more cautious about? I think the Fed keeping rates higher for longer and higher doesn't mean as high as they are now, just means not back to zero interest rates, right? Not back to the super low level. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to slowly and carefully force people to be more rigorous, to be more discerning because there now is a more tangible, a higher cost to capital. And as long as there's a cost to capital, there's a cost to your mistakes, mistakes for bad capital allocation. And I think the Fed has been, I think purposely and I think intelligently probably been careful to do this slowly so that we don't engineer a huge crash like what we saw in the 70s and in the tech bubble, which just was kind of really damaging. And the great financial crisis, very damaging to a lot of people. And I think what they're tr trying to do is this time around change behavior mm. so that if the crash isn't as steep, it takes a longer time then you don't have the people buying the dip, right? They're not, oh, it's down big. Let's just buy back. And the game is back on and we're just right back to where we were. 
we've seen the same thing with the Fed and inflation, right? They, you know, they don't want to take their foot off the pedal too soon because they don't want people to go back to partying, right? We need to stay rational and stay disciplined for an extended period of time for people to relearn those habits. Mm. And I, for one, am hopeful that's what's going to happen. Mm. And I think we're seeing less kind of meme stock things happening these days. No more SPACs. Bitcoin is kind of, and crypto sort of run its course. And I feel like we're kind of slowly kind of coming back to a world where people are going to be more discerning and intelligent about capital allocation. And just to add to that, and Richard alluded to it in the first half of the show, and it's something I've been banging on about a little bit, which is we are very close to that point where the base interest rate is going to be higher than the rate of inflation for the first time in 15 years. And people will start using terms like the Taylor rule again. And I, what does that mean? It might mean nothing. I mean, we've got past 15 years without the financial world imploding. It might mean something. I think the one thing it will mean is more belief in the system. Mm. Now it all just seems to make a bit more sense. Banks are there so you can deposit cash and it makes you money as opposed to lose you money. We haven't said that since 2008, David. Is there another? Things have been upside yeah, down. Is there another smoke signal, something else that when our listeners are watching CNBC or reading, maybe not the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, but their Yahoo Finance articles, sponsored articles oftentimes. Is there something else that makes you go, <laughs> oh, watch out, beware, the kind of things that you would tell an ordinary person in the street when you're out walking the dog or getting your groceries? You really ought to be careful about this. Another smoke signal that you can warn people of. I think you really ought to be careful of companies who overstate their profits right? And whose valuations imply ridiculous profit improvement. Mostly what we call zombie stocks. I think part of the gradual reorientation of the market means that you don't know which one of these zombie stocks is going to be the next one to fall. They're not all going to go at once. They're going to come in some, and I don't know what random order, it's just going to be how long can they continue to restructure debt for how long would their investors allow them to continue? Because AMC suddenly down a whole bunch. It's a meme stock that looks like it may be headed to zero. Beyond Meat, kind of falling apart. Carvana, not so much. They're all horrific business models. You're telling me that, you telling me that Beyond Meat lacked the flesh? <laughs> no real flesh on the bone. And, on and one of the things that I just, in the most generic terms, you do in reverse DCFs is you say, will you ever get paid back? If you put money in this company, and you own a share, and by the way, the management might be issuing shares willy-nilly. It's called stock-based compensation and dilute you by 50% by the time you get your payback. But will you ever, will the company ever generate enough profits to pay you back? Or how long might that take? And you realize it's measured in decades or centuries or millennia, not in the next five years worth of dividend. That's right. And that's part of the ethos of new constructs is to not be out there trying to con contribute to the wild narratives, but to give people mathematically driven, logic driven details on why a stock looks structurally overvalued or structurally undervalued. Mm. And Richard, you're exactly right. The reverse DCF just says, okay, let's see what the future cash flows have to be to justify the price. Right. And you look at some stocks and it's like, oh, they've got to double their margins and grow revenue at 30% compounded annually for 25 years. That's probably not going to happen. And, if they, and by the way, if they do that, to give you some context, it's going to imply that, you know, that their revenue is larger than the GDP of Ireland or Mexico, something unbelievable. 
And that's what you're buying. That's what the stock price implies. Mm. I'm not here to tell you if that's terrible or bad. I'm just, that's the benchmark. On the other hand, if there are stocks out there whose stock price implies that the profits will permanently decline by 20%, that's a much lower bar. Maybe I'm willing to buy that and enjoy that risk reward as opposed to just the nutty stuff, the super high valuation. And so I think most people should take comfort in the fact that there is math that can give you a good answer. You just got to be willing to take a look at it. I think on that note, we should close out and hope that more and more people in the market eventually will also take a look at the math and the hard numbers and not simply drink giant-sized pint glass cool pint glasses of Kool-Aid again and again, side them up to the bar for yet another pitcher of Kool-Aid because we don't have any trouble finding those sort of stocks in the market these days. I second that emotion. And if I can maybe close out with the most pr- profound words I've heard in this brilliant conversation, David, is when you said there's a cost to capital, so there's a cost to your mistakes. And we know there's an increasing cost of capital, so there's an increasing cost of mistakes. So for our audience's benefit, tapping into your website, new constructs, might be a helpful way of avoiding those increasingly costly mistakes. David, thank you for coming on Bubble Trouble. It's been a fantastic conversation. I would love to get you back on. My pleasure. I'd love to be back. Thank you. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.